the name of the show is intentional growth. And I love hearing what, what, what the word intentional means to them. So what does it mean to you? Intentional means that you have a purpose and a direct purpose for a, a, a desired outcome. And you follow that and put one foot in front of the other every single day and keep your nose pointed in that direction and you will get there eventually. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Thanks for tuning back in. This is episode 279 of the Intentional Growth Podcast. I'm Ryan Tansom, your host, and I am really excited for today's episode. I am sure if you're tuning in and you own a company and you've heard someone say, decouple yourself from the sales process. All you have to do is build out your sales department, hire the rock stars out there and let them roll and you can just scale your company beyond belief. And people know that they need systems and processes and assessments and all these things to do this. But then people go, where do I find these people? How do I identify them? How do I make sure they're the right person? And that is exactly what we're going to be unpacking and diving into today. And I'm really excited for the guest uh, who's coming on the show. And his name is Doug C. Brown. I'm going to read off his bio here real quick. He's a highly acclaimed sales revenue growth expert, an international best-selling author. He has coached, consulted, and advised thousands of people in business, as well as companies including Enterprise Rent-A-Car, Nationwide, Intuit, Procter & Gamble, CBS Television, and others. He has collected an impressive amount of experience throughout his life in different fields, especially sales. During this period, he created over 35 companies. Doug served as an independent president of sales and training for Tony Robbins, Chet Holmes, Russ Whitney, and others. And he's generated over 500 million in sales himself and his last client made 3 million in five weeks. His most outstanding professional achievements is increasing the company's close rate by 862% and their revenue growth by 116% in four months. Doug is a 12-year veteran at the, of the U.S. Army and a proud father of two wonderful daughters. And his, his mission is to help companies grow their sales revenue and have the better performing sales teams. And what I love about this, so you can sit there and go, yeah, 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 any salesperson can make that stuff up. But uh, what's amazing is in our conversation today, Doug starts talking about how salespeople can embellish their resumes. So you can listen in to see how you know either full of BS Doug is or whether he's got a bunch of takeaways. Well, I've already recorded the interview, so there's a lot of takeaways. And Doug and I dive into what does a top sales performer look like? What is their criteria from sales, uh, a willingness to sell to emotional resiliency to intrinsic motivation to wake up and just crush it and then make a lot of money? So we help. Uh, we have a conversation around the profile of this individual, where they are, and in, in like very unique ways on how to find them. And Doug's got some very interesting comments about that. But I think this is a super important episode because. Right now, I know people are looking at how do I grow, you know, and if you have the process and procedures set up, then the next question is how do I find these rock stars and keep them and make them happy? And I think this is a great conversation for you to listen in and get better understanding and clarity around what this person can look like. And so that way you can take the time to find them and then hire them and make sure that everything's set up so that way you can tie your customer journey and sales comp plan and salespeople to the valuation that you want in some period in time down the road. 
And if you want more information about how to specifically do that, go check out the intentional growth training at arcona.io, download the curriculum. But sales and marketing is one of the value drivers in principle number four. So it's very relevant that you identify the sales performers, bring them on board if you need them, and then tie them to the long-term plan. Thanks again for tuning in. So without further ado, here's my interview with Doug C. Brown. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Doug, how are you? I'm great, Ryan. Thanks for having me here. I'm uh, looking forward to uh, diving into uh, your background and talking about sales and growth. A lot of stuff that a lot, a lot of people care about, right? And uh, hopefully we'll put bring some intentionality to it. And uh, your background uh, is uh, going to speak for itself as far as like why we can do some of the things that we can do. So for the audience, Doug, just give us the, the you know the the thirty thousand foot overview, and then we'll go back and unpack a bunch of the the, the parts of it. Yeah, I I began working at the age of three for my father's business. <laughs> uh, I swept floors for twenty five cents a week, and I loved it. Um, and by the age of five or six or so, we were placed out in front of clients and uh, helping them write orders and do all that stuff. So I was learning kind of the the skill sets. Uh, my mother, my mother was actually a very successful Avon lady in the in the seventies and uh, late sixties, seventies, uh, as well as a nurse. So I used to travel with her, and I loved when she would count up her commissions right at the end. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of got the bug early on. I, I've built, uh, funded, or or you know have succeeded or crashed and and burned in about thirty five companies at this point, uh, helping others as well as myself. Uh, today, I, I generally serve um, helping people and companies, you know, sell into the, you know, like the one top percent of all salespeople and sales teams uh, globally. And when you say the one, the the one percent, you're talking about the one percent of desired companies to sell into, or are you talking about the the top performers? The top performers, yeah, the top performers. It, I mean, because sales is a communications business more so than anything, so. Really, the industry is not a factor. It's more of a, you know, how do you train the the person and and get them to be able to be top performers. So let's talk about, and I'm I'm super fascinated in this whole sales and marketing conversation. It's well, I grew up in a copier world, right? So I mean, like it was the smile and the dialing, and I'm sure you've had your fair share of uh, bump ins or uh, whatever exposure to the Xerox world and the IBM world, right? <laughs> Where like, a lot of us. <laughs> suits were, were manufactured out of <laughs> absolutely as well as having you know worked with companies that do you know laser cartridges and different things in that industry so yes Caton, uh, the, the, the remanufactured uh, toner <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's awesome so uh, let's start doug you know I, i'm coming from your perspective and then we can talk about the different types of companies what equals success for the types of people and like honestly even as sale as strategies have shifted but Setting some groundwork, Doug, is I, I had this woman on the show recently, Jennifer Zick, who was a fractional CMO, and we kind of talked about specifically marketing, but like, you know, how the, the merge of sales and marketing, where does it start and stop, you know, and then like, 
how it's different when you're B2B, B2C types of companies that you're reaching after. So maybe kind of give us some of your perspective of like where do sales and marketing start and stop and like the different approaches that people would have, like maybe B2B, B2C, and then where you fit inside of that. Yeah, I think, you know, here's the thing that I've always, from experience, I found that when you we integrate marketing and sales, it's really about the customer journey, right? So it's about, it's really not fractionalized into marketing. It's not fractionalized into sales if we really want to optimize it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, customer service can be one of your best sales divisions in the company if you work it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so really marketing and sales to me, even though they're separate functions and I intellectually understand that, I like to look at it as it's a customer journey from beginning to end. So if marketing is starting that journey, the congruency of the messaging needs to be consistent all the way through. Otherwise, it's, it's kind of like taking a you know an airplane ride and everything's going fine and all of a sudden turbulence kicks in and it's like, whoa, you know, that doesn't make you feel warm and fuzzy about the airline company at that point, nor the plane that you're riding and you're just hoping mm-hmm. you get through it. So when things are aligned like that and whether it's B2B or B2C, that alignment is actually going to help companies uh, do a few things. One, they're going to convert better. Uh, two, they're going to convert faster. Uh, and three, they're going to have higher profitability. So, you know, I, I, I believe, and just based on, you know, doing all of this for so many years, that when we align those, the pieces in one unified system to sell something and then generate an expansion on the sale on the back end, that is uh, really, uh, you know, a seamless process when it's done right. Well, and I'm looking forward to unpacking this process, but before we do, like, what, what in, out of the 35 companies that you've been a part of, or like, I mean, I know you've, well, what's the total number of aggregate sales that you've helped uh, participate in 2 billion or something like that? Like what, what has worked and what are some of the key, you know, takeaways along your journey that have led you into your thought process today? Uh, a lot of mistakes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Tuition payments, right? <laughs> tons, tons of them. I mean, I have about, you know, I have over 600 million in sales that I can account for. And then working with companies and teams, you know, it, it goes much higher than that. And, you know, what I, what I realized is mistakes aren't a problem. As long as we don't continuously focus on trying to fix the problem. But if we fix the cause of the mistake, then all of a sudden the problem never exists again, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I've certainly had my share of successes and, you know, oh, that worked great. I've also had the other side where it's like, okay, that didn't work as good as we thought it was going to work. <laughs> all right, how do we make up that ground? And, you know, how do we overcome or or play win-win with that process? And to me, that's, it's it's a constant learning process. I mean, I've worked with, you know, multi-billion dollar corporations. I've worked with mom and pop organizations. I've worked with solo entrepreneurs and I've worked anywhere in between. And what I find is it's a constant state of uh, never ending growth, you Mm -hmm. know, because once you get to a certain level, it's like, oh, okay, we got another thing we have to deal with. So I I find the, you know, the mistakes are as as valuable as the actual uh, wins because we learn probably more from the mistakes than we do from the wins because we go, Oh, that was great. We won. We'll, we'll duplicate it again. But what happens when we duplicate it two more times and it doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. All right. And so now we got to figure out, Oh, well, was it the market conditions? Was it whatever it might've been? Mm -hmm. And you know, that's the interesting part of, of business in general. It's a never ending process. 
So what do you, when you, what I think is interesting about uh, your background that you mentioned that is uh, important to understand about sales is selling for a multi-billion dollar organization, whether it's a, you know, $2 million ERP implementation versus a mom and pa shop that's, you know, going out there and selling who knows what it is, right? Whether it's retail right. or whether it's, uh, you know, assisted living facility, that's a small one. You know, I'm just thinking of just random stuff. Like, right. like sure. you said, it's a customer journey. So like, wh- what does success look like in sales? You know, with the customer journey, you said it was a communication strategy. So like, what are, like, what would you define as a good successful sales strategy? And how do we, un- how do you want to unpack this? Okay, so there's a lot in that in that. Con- <laughs> <laughs> Give us the silver bullet, Doug, of all perfect sales stuff immediately. <laughs> well, it, it's always about playing win-win and keeping a rapport really high through the process. So, and what I mean by win-win is, are we actually doing the right thing by the client, by the potential buyer? Now, whether that is, hey, we're selling flowers in a florist, mm-hmm. right? And it's a, uh, you know. Or it is, you know, we're selling ERP system. Believe it or not, I know what that is. Um, I also know what extruders are too, because I worked in that industry. <laughs> um, so it's it's you're dealing with people, and people want to have a trust level and a confidence in what they're buying. I mean, statistically, you know, all the reading I've done or anything that I've been involved in, we're really trying to alleviate the fears and improve the faith in the process. And so every little piece of whatever we do must support building the faith, reducing the fear in the process. Because playing win-win for number one is is doing that because, you know, people are sometimes, I mean, I just had this happen just recently. I just told somebody, they were like, I'll pay you whatever you want. Uh, I know who you are. I know your experience in this industry. And I said, I'm not the right guy for you to do this, right? Because of these reasons. But I do know who the right people are, so I'm going to introduce you. Now, that was somewhere between a half million and a million dollars a year to to my company, but it wasn't the right thing for them, Mm -hmm. right? So so how do we play win-win no matter what it is? Because people remember playing win-win down to, you know, human-to-human communication. I mean, uh, I, I backed into somebody's car one time and nobody was around and I knew I damaged the car. Right. And I'm like, Oh, geez, what do I do here? I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. I'm like, I'll put a note on the car, but what if they don't get the note? Right. This is win win. So I hung around, started writing the note. The person came out and I said, look, I backed into your car. I'm sorry. Right. I will cover this hundred percent, whether it's insurance or I just pay for it out of pocket. The guy was stunned. Right, because I was in an area in in a big city where people would hit somebody and then just take off, mm-hmm. right? And so, craziest thing happened. It was like sixteen hundred dollars in damage. I paid it out of pocket, but his father called me. His father called me, and this kid was about nineteen. He was driving mm-hmm. a nice Tesla. That was another part of it. <laughs> <laughs> So much behind that, first of all. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep exactly. Going. <laughs> exactly. And I, you know, I just didn't see it. I clipped the fender on the car and that was the end of it. And, uh, you know, but his father called me and he said, I want to thank you for having integrity and by playing, you know, doing the right thing. And I said to him, I said, well, he goes, uh, you know, I've always taught my children to do that. I said, well, I guess there's at least two of us in this world, right? Here's the point. I damaged the car. I paid for it. I played win-win. 
Now that's to, it turns out he's a very, very successful medical professional. And we've developed a relationship which is leading to business, right? So it it's playing win-win through the process will never hurt somebody. It will only enhance because now I've got a, 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 a valued asset that I can go to and network through, which I never would have got, you know, for hit, you know, unless I hit the kid's car, right? So it's it's how you take these problems and turn them into win-win plays. So mm-hmm. everything is is de- has to be designed in the marketing or the whole customer journey on how to increase the buying confidence in the internal buyer and how to reduce the fear not only in the buyer but in the influencers and everyone who can be you know touch that sale in the case mm-hmm. of the car the father was part of the sale i didn't realize that until after he called me right but that led me on to another thing so you know a lot of people don't like to play this way ryan because it's a lot of work to set it up right and so they look at like top line and they'll just like, hey, you know, we're doing OK, we're making money, et cetera, et cetera. And that's fine if that's the way they want to play it. But if you want to squeeze the profitability out and optimize the whole process, then we have to look at the whole customer journey and start tweaking the radio dials on each and every little segment of that process. And when we do, you know, a lot of times like magic stuff happens. I, I had another conversation with somebody, you know, over half of their sales teams not following up. With any of their leads, <laughs> well, and, and, well, and if they were leads, it sounds like that those salespeople didn't generate those leads. Marketing probably did. And, Marketing you know, generated exactly. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I can guarantee you, there's anybody that's outbound sales. You, you, you're working pretty darn hard to get those leads. But they, what, there's a couple of things there, Doug, that I want to highlight. You, the fact that you know you're, when you're talking about eliminating fear and building faith, it's a trusting, and you mentioned the word trust and. David Horsager, he wrote The Trust Edge. He's a friend and he's been on the show a couple of times. I don't know if you've ever heard of that book, but like literally trust right now. Like no one has it in any company, our government, you name the people. I mean, everybody's so skeptical and business owners have been, you know, so many times you you buy a bill of goods, services or products, and it's not even close to what you think. So like, again, everybody's approaching their the offers through fear, like you said. And so I think you, t- you tapped into something very interesting. And then when I like part of trust, there's a Robert, uh, is it Caldini? He wrote the book influence of consistency, right? Consistency builds trust. And you talk about the customer journey. What's super interesting. This is, this is leading to a question is that given that, that foundation, Doug, finding salespeople that can represent your brand as a business owner and founder, represent your brand who has that integrity, who stays consistent, who also gets up, likes to do the hard work, and follows up. The amount of people from the show or clients that can't find these type of people to go out there and decouple themselves from the sales process or their, you know, and maintain all of those things we just talked about. How the hell do people do this? <laughs> so so here's the thing. Are you laughing because it's hard? <laughs> no, well, I mean, it, it is hard if you don't know how to do it. And it's still hard when you know how to do it, right? Because, but what I, what I would tell uh, everybody listening is firstly, stop being in such a rush to hire somebody, hire the right person. Well, how do you do that? Because if you think about it, the cost of turnover and hiring a salesperson um, or sales manager or sales engineer is extremely high when you turn them over. So 
you know, a typical company that I would look at, I mean, they like, hey, I hired this guy. He was likable. Or I hired this gal. She was likable. And they left in three months. Okay. What did that cost you? Well, they don't even think about that until you start monetizing. But then they hired another person for three months. They flushed out another person three months. A year later, they find the person that they want. And if they just had a, had a process around this that gave them constant feedback, whether this person was right for the role or not, and it took them four or five months, that person's still with the company two years later mm-hmm. and doing quite well. So one of the things that I tell people is we have to have a consistent duplicatable process around hiring. For example, in interviews, the same questions need to be asked. I've sat in on so many interviews where they just ask r- different things because it's personality based, right? <laughs> I'm laughing. Like, I'm, I'm victim of that, man. I'm totally guilty. <laughs> <laughs> but and and Ryan, I I used to as well, right? Uh, it, it it's until you learn, like, oh wow, if you have consistency, you can measure this and benchmark it against something mm-hmm. that you're really looking for, mm-hmm. and you know. Um, And I like to use uh, a lot, not a lot, but I like to use sales-specific assessments as well when I'm doing this, right? Things that will measure sales personality, not just personality test, but will they measure the sales DNA of the person, right? Are they a true hunter, right? Because a lot of people will bring somebody in and they'll think they're a hunter and they can't hunt, but they might be better off in a customer service role or a farming type role where they're taking care of the client, right? Mm -hmm. And by the way, everybody listening, please write this down. All resumes are embellished upon. They're a bunch of lies. Okay. Especially if you're a salesperson, right? (laughs) (laughs) They they know how to persuade people. They know what to write in these things, Uh, right? So part of the process is to challenge what is in that resume and go right after it, mm -hmm. right? So it just, also, we have to step back and say, okay, what role are we actually filling? Do we need somebody with a very high ego strength, which is not there's you know too high, which is arrogance, mm-hmm. but they're confident in their ability, right? Um, but do we also need somebody with a lot of empathy? You know, has a good bedside manner because you can get a lot of people with high ego, you know, who will just crush the conversation. But if that's not representative of how we want to play, then we don't want to be there. So there's a lot of factors, but it's really about coming down to having a a measurable process around and systematic, mm-hmm. right? That is duplicatable so that we can we can benchmark against what we want. Now, if we have people, which is even better, if you have a company that, you know, you got, you know, eight people, 20 people doing great, well, we can we can benchmark that and profile that mm-hmm. and then put it against the the roles that we're we're looking for. That's you know a lot easier because we go, okay, these people are, you know, consistently 30% over 50% over quota. Okay, this is kind of the profile we're looking for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is this making well, sense? It, totally, and I think even one, a couple of comments too on the DNA too. Like, yeah, hunter farmer, very typical, like filtered on salespeople, but also like, you know, if someone was a manufacturer's rep or like a channel sales rep, way right. different than a hunter, right? They're used to managing five big relationships and managing accounts versus right. going to market. And I think so, you know. And we can put a pin in this part and we can maybe loop back to it, Doug, of like, as far as like, how do you, you know, how does your business model impact what type of people you need to hire? Because I think your business model 
and the, the size of the, the sale, the time duration of the sale, all are going to impact when and how the combination of hunter gatherer, all that kind of stuff, or hunter farmer, hunter gatherer, hunter farmer uh, impact. But before we do that, Doug, like well, there's something that like, cause I've been out of the process of hiring just constant salespeople. Cause we had 20 some salespeople, copier and manage it and software sales reps, all those product, those three services are all different with the type of like solutions versus transactions versus, you know, high quota and high commission versus, you know, and low base versus high base and smaller variable. Like, are these people out there? Because I look at our, like the clients and companies that I work with are in the peer groups or our clients. And it's like trying to find people that still have the ability to wake up, pick up the phone, you know, and call people or like follow up, like, where and how are these people out there? And, you know, and honestly, we don't have to get necessarily too far into the, grand, the, the weeds of this, Doug, but like the pay too, like what should people expect for like a rack solid salesperson for base comp? You know, it's just tough that people are, I think cause the, the, the reason I bring this all up is a lot of people, I get a lot of head nodding to systems, standardized process for hiring, but then they're like, well, where the hell are these people and how much do I got to pay them? And do they fit for my company and how long, you know, like what's the process to going about that? Yeah. I, I mean, I'll go back to one thing that you said, you know, you can have a channel sales manager and on their resume, it'll say, you know, constantly, you know, 200% above quota, right? <laughs> $2 million right? of sales each quarter. And yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it seems like it's, you know, large numbers, depending on the size of the company. I mean, if you're going for a job at, you know, a $28 billion company, probably not so as impressive, but the, so the real question comes down to depending on what you're looking for, do they have, like you said, get up and want to do it every day. Right? So there's a DNA characteristic called will to sell that can be measured. Right? Do they actually have the will to sell? Are they going to go and somebody goes, uh, they go, hey, I'm pitching. Here's what we do. And the person goes, yeah, that's not really. Hey, thanks so much. It was a real good time to talk with you next. And they move on. Right now, there's a certain time for that in the particular model. But the reality is if they don't have the will to sell, the will to close, if they don't know how to consultatively sell, then mm -hmm. usually their closing skills are going to be bad. Right. So it kind of follows all the way through. But all of this can be measured up front. And, you know, I always tell people, they go, well, you know, what should I do? I go, you simulate the working conditions before you hire them, before they ever, ever get there. Right. If they have to know how to present, take 10 or 12 slides, give them the slides, have them go into a room for 15 or 20 minutes, come back out and present to you. You know, if they're if they're award winning academy you know, sales actor of the year type of person, and you want that, great, you know they can present. But if they're boring the heck out of you, guess what they're going to do with your clientele or your potential buyers? <laughs> I know. It's almost such common sense sometimes. You're like, oh, like duh, right? But and there was a there was a, an individual I interviewed, Joel, and I'll put the show uh, link in the show notes, but he was talking about how to hire executives. We had this whole conversation. He brought up this example about a, a sales director and literally, like he said, it's a, their ability to strategize about the future and predict it and their ability to execute to get there. So he was talking about like having a salesperson come in and say, here's a strategy. I looked at your market. Here's kind of what I would do. And like literally part of the interview process, housing that person build that strategy about what sure. they would do. 
what other tools are you seeing that like, you know, you said you can measure it. Are there tools that you guys like or that you've used in the past that are helping identify and match up these different uh, scenarios? Yeah, there's different uh, types of tools. I mean, one of them is put out by what's called a company called Objective Management Group. I use I use their assessments a lot right? okay. because because they have they have done over two million assessments. So all the data is, you know, from over two million Wow, actual salespeople, mm-hmm. right? So it's um, it's very accurate and it's predictive. You got predictive validity with this particular one. So what happened, here's the thing with assessments. There's thousands of them, right? Right, Thousands of them. And a lot of them will go, hey, I'll, I took this, you know, I use a, a disc profile or, a, you know, you name the one, right? Mm-hmm. I'm an extrovert, Doug, you should hire me. <laughs> exactly, right? So it's like, okay, it's, it's nice you have that personality, but that doesn't make you successful in this role in sales, mm-hmm. right? And this is where a lot of people run into challenges and they'll, you know, Myers-Briggs, oh, I'm a whatever, and they'll they'll spout it out. And it's like, okay, but does that fit the role of what we're trying to do? You know, and especially there's another thing about personality. What happens when they're under stress? <laughs> the personality can change right? yeah, dramatically. They, they can go from a humanistic to a director immediately. Right. Because they're trying to grab onto security and control. So there's there's all, all different ways of doing this. But, you know, I, I love that particular company and their assessments. Um, and it's you know, they it's scientifically backed as well. Right. Does it, so it's does it pre- have any kind of indication, Doug, on like emotional resilience, resiliency? Because I think what's super interesting is that, you know, and I don't know if it's just because of whether it was my age or the timeline of like my career of, you know, essentially jumping right into the family business that was under duress in the financial crisis to pulling it out from it and in the sales organization. I and mean, I grew up literally drowning in a suit selling copiers. And like people are like, well, what's the one of the best things you've ever done in your career? I'm like, sales. I got a PhD, you know, Brian Tracy, Jeffrey Gittimore and all this like PhD yeah. in psychology because I got told how bad I sucked every day of my <laughs> life. You know, the 5% that said they liked me, they gave me checks. Thank God it gave me, got me hooked. But this emotional resiliency is so hard, especially with all the stuff going on today. How do you identify that in the salesperson? Because that's like you said, the willingness to sell and the emotional objections you get all the time. Right. I think it's difficult for non-salespeople to identify that that quality in people. And and I agree with you. So again, you can assess that through assessments, but you can also assess that through questions. So for example, you know, when um, I, I, I was uh, Chet Holmes, independent president of training and sales, right? I don't know if you know who Chet is. He wrote a book called The Ultimate Sales Machine. Mm-hmm. Yep, I love it. So we used to do something called recruiting superstars, right? I mean, and in one part of the... Uh, of the interview, no matter where you were, you con- you challenge this person. So it depends, you know, what we were looking for, you know, in the beginning, especially somebody who could, in a very short period of time, get somebody to take a credit card out from a radio ad, right? That's mm-hmm. what we were. <laughs> so, so what we used to do all the time is they would come in They, you know, they give the resume, we attack the resume, we do all that stuff. Uh, you know, we first would put a, a process together that they had to, you know, go to a website, read all the information, and, you know, we knew we asked questions off that. So immediately, if they can't pay attention to detail, we knew that off the website. It's like, you know, X, Y, Z. Oh, uh, ooh, I don't know. Right. All right next. You're done. Right. Because you're going to be dealing with CEOs and, you know, privately held business owners. They're, they're going to expect that. So mm-hmm. when we would run them through, we would go through the interview and no matter where, 
how well we wanted to hire them, we would always ask this question. We would always make the statement first and then ask the question. It would be, hey, Ryan, you know what? I really like a lot of things I'm, uh, about our conversation, but I don't know. I've only got a few positions here and I'm just questioning. I'm not really hearing you're a real sales superstar. I'm hearing you kind of were in sales. I'm just not hearing superstar. And we would be quiet and listen. <laughs> I love it. Right? right? And and here's the thing. You would be shocked how many people come in with a most embellished resume, did a great, you know, op- a great interview, uh, got through the second interview and at that second interview go, oh, oh okay, thank you. They're done. <laughs> like the one thing that you're giving them a pushback is on their own skill set from the number one thing that that's their their career and they just accepted that at face value (laughs) right 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 so (laughs) so, so the thing is is here's what i want everybody to please understand if they do it then they will definitely do it in the field (laughs) i was i was uh shadowing a, a, a real estate company asked me to you know shadow their people right so i i shadowed and I, it blew my mind. Uh, this lady uh, and a man came into a home. The house was over $4 million. So, you know, you figure 6% commission on $4 million is not, not a bad day. <laughs> right? And they, uh, the, the, the woman was going to the husband, I really want this house. I love this. Honey, look, the kids will be over here. Imagine them playing at Christmas time here, you know, doing all of this. And he kept going, yeah, I don't know. It's a little more than I want to go. And she was like, yeah, but look, we got the pool out back. We've got this, we've got that. And he's like, yeah, sweets, but I don't know. You know, it's a lot for us to take on. I mean, we can do it, but I don't, you know, and they were going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And no kidding, the real estate agent, they go, okay, you know, I think we're really considering doing this. And the real estate agent said this, Ryan. She goes, you know, this is a really big decision. It's a life-altering, life-changing decision. And you don't seem to be 100% there yet. So why don't you think it over and get back to me? And I'm like, if I could have kicked her, I would have, right? But that would be violent, so I don't do that. But the, the <laughs> yeah. right? But here's the rub of the story. They did not buy that house. But they did buy another house in the similar neighborhood, and they paid over $5 million for the house. So she would have had her commission, right? And But because she had so much empathy, and she didn't have the ability to, you know, the will to close, that she used what we call buyer's bias, which is also something that could be measured, right? We like to buy, and we like to sell how we buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, you nailed that. Yeah, yeah. I totally, I think right? a lot of people can resonate with that. Yeah, so in her, in her case, she she was a think it over person. So she let him think it over. And little did she know, they had other realtors they were talking with. And the other realtor brought them into the same community and bam. Right? Mm. So the reality is that all of this can be measured and it can be quantified, especially if we have a systematic process for doing it. And it, you could save yourself a ton of time. 
in the long run, especially once you have the system set up. And I know a lot of people probably saying, well, what's the system, right? Well, mm-hmm. that's a longer conversation than we could probably have on this podcast. You, you, but- get, you want to give like the, the big, the big overview of the system? Yeah. I mean, you, you, firstly, what are we exactly looking for? You know, one of the challenges a lot of co- uh, companies have in sales in general is what's the right fit client. They never right. define it. <laughs> yeah. They never define their clients. So how are you going to figure out what, what kind of salesperson or comp plan or all that stuff that you need to sell to that client that you're not sure of. <laughs> exactly. So once we understand that now, how do we build the system off of what is the right fit client? Can these people actually go and get or close on right fit clients? So you start, you start right in the beginning of that thing. And I always like, I always like, um, you know, a, kind of a screening interview type process in the beginning. And the whole purpose of the screening interview is so you don't have to interview them. So you want to set up the barriers along the way. See, top producers love barriers. They love them, right? Because they, the bigger the challenge, a true top producer, knowing the opportunities there, you know, will basically claw through iron doors to get to that place, (laughs) right? So that they will actually, you know, be able to achieve the sale, you know, I never realized growing up, but I was, you know, I am a top producer and, you know, and I've been that way in every company. And even when I ran teams, I would still sell, you know, I had 166 people reporting to me, uh, you know, when I did the thing for Tony Robbins and others, and I would outsell all of them. I would not let them beat me no matter what. Now you might say, well, that's egotistical, but I always thought of it as win-win because I always thought, listen, if I'm the head of the division, and I'm breaking quota and somebody comes and whines to me about, hey, you know, this is too hard or this is that. I can always go back to him and say, well, how with managing 166 people am I able to do it? And you're not. Let's talk about it. Right. I had more credibility that way. So so on the specific point, because you bring I love this point, Doug, is that um, I've had this other gentleman that that grew up in the sales world. He's uh, got a sales consulting firm, too. And he him and I talked about this whole like you know, the, the challenge of companies where they hire the top producer to then become the manager. And I was like, <laughs> that was me. So like I was in my twenties, early twenties, I was like selling a lot of gear. And then all yep. of a sudden I'm manager. I'm like, so here was my management technique. And again, caveat, this was like 14 years ago. It was like, Hey Doug, why don't you just wake up and do what I did? <laughs> that was essentially right. my co- my coaching. I was not polished on the coaching <laughs> front. Yet. But like, so there's this whole challenge of like, of you know the the manager not necessarily having the leadership capabilities because they were the top producer or the flip flop of that is someone that's the coach who doesn't who's never done it and then the top producer goes hey dog you've never even picked up a damn phone yourself so like right. how how are you gonna I got no respect for you you know so how do you how do you deal with that that situation so <laughs> it's interesting because there's a parallel in the military when I was in the military right if you're an enlisted person and you become an officer, you understand what the enlisted person's going through. But if you just became an officer out of college, you don't understand what the enlisted person, right? So it's a mm-hmm. very similar state. So, you know, here's here's the reality. Uh, there's an old joke in the, in the world of business, which is if you want to ruin two positions, hire your top producer and make them a, ma- a manager. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> right? Now, there's a lot of truth to that, but there's also people you know, like myself who can do both. Right. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing though. I had to learn to be a manager. 
Right. Just like right. you were saying, you know, you came in, you're like, oh, just do what I'm doing. You know, I, I you know, <laughs> wake bada, up early, bada bing. pick up the phone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> wait, wait a second. Oh, there's other things in, at play here. Yeah. What, what, what's your, what's your issue? I don't understand. Right. That type of thing. Right. So, and truly when you're a top producer like that, you don't understand, you know? And so there's a lot of factors that go into it, but here's the thing, a manager's profile and a top producer's profile are usually very different. And, you know, a top producer loves to get out and sell loves. They love people. They want to get out there. You give them a spreadsheet. They will want to jump out the 14th floor window. They don't like it right? Their brain goes, right? In the whole process, because, you know, and that's me. Like you give me, hey, create some pivot tables. No, no. <laughs> right? No. Unless right? it's for my comp plan and for my quarterly bonus on how I can get more, <laughs> then maybe I'll struggle through it. <laughs> but I will outsource that. I won't do it myself, right? Yeah, well, yeah. Now you give that same thing to a manager, and they love doing that stuff. They love looking at the data. You give that to a sales engineer, they're just going to be, you know, usually thrilled, right? Because it's all the methodical stuff that they like to go through. So when somebody's hiring for a specific purpose, we have to understand what that specific purpose is in that specific role and then understand, do they actually fit there? And again, mm -hmm. you can assess these things. A manager's assessment will be different. You know, even, even it's, it's, it's no different than if you're the CEO of the company and, you know, usually, usually, not always, you were the best salesperson in the company, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because you had that belief system and that will to make it work, right? So, you know, you asked the question earlier, I, and I, I thought it was a great question is, okay, where are these people? Where do I find them, right? Are they out there, right? And the answer is yes. Where, where do you find them? Some, many times, not in the traditional places that people look. So, you know, we've hired, you know, because we wanted people who had a very high ego state, a very high confidence. So we've hired people who were like bungee jumpers. <laughs> I love it. <clears throat> right? I mean, kind of. I mean, I'm like, yeah, you just, what, what, what's your fear? Definitely not of the person that's on the other end of that phone. <laughs> just jumped <laughs> exactly. off a plane over the weekend or jumped over <laughs> off a bridge. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, people who jump off bridges are usually one of two two profiles either absolutely you know crazy or they have high confidence really when it comes down to high self-worth and high confidence right um you know bungee jumpers uh base jumpers like a lot of people won't think like this but the reality is if you, here's the thing with a top producer too you have to have a great training system and a great sales onboarding system not just an onboarding system from hr mm -hmm. they 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 expect it so, you know, if you if you put those pieces into your company and you have a great sales system that gets them up and being able to make money quickly, as quick as possible, or you, you know, you reference back how do you, you know, the compensation, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. if you have a long sales cycle, you have to you have to compensate them. But anybody who's a true salesperson and a true producer wants commission. They want the mm -hmm. highest commission they can possibly get because they know that is leverage for them. That is the working leverage that a salesperson is looking for. You know, when you can go in and make a year's worth of salary in one week or one day doing it the right way and then duplicate that over and over and over again, man, that's a true salesman's, you know, or salesperson's. Yeah. yeah. 
Right. Well, and, so, and so it's so interesting, Doug, too, because like you're so right. And like, because I've had so many of these conversations, as I'm sure you have, of like, well, the salesperson wants a 80, 85% base and then 10 to 20% variable. And I'm sitting here going, okay, well, that makes sense. Like you said, if you have a two year sales cycle of like, you know, the $2 million SAP implementations, I'm just making something up where there's 17 right. stakeholders, your committees after committees and RFPs or whatever. Like, I understand the need to like have a non-recoverable draw or draw or something like that to get the person to be able to pay their bills. But like when I got the taste of making six figures selling copiers when I was 22 and right. I was like, wait a second, all I have to do is wake up, work harder and I make more money. Like, right. You you don't want it that you don't want anybody to ever take that away from you. And so, like you said, like you, I've watched people in the moment that they increase the variable comp and reduce the base, they freak people out. And it's like, well, like the person just showed you their colors. Finding the people though that like like myself back then, or like the true salespeople, the top producers, where that's inherent in them. How do you identify that? And then how are you like it? it maybe for the words to the founders being okay with the salesperson is the highest paid person in the company. Cause you own the assets, right? The company is owned by the owner. So right. it's okay to have someone's income higher than yours. So how do you <laughs> find the, you're laughing? Cause I'm assuming this is the same dialogue you have. Yeah, yeah it really is. I remember, I remember one time I was, um, I had the greatest, greatest job in the world. When I was going to college, I was selling music equipment. And I was selling it to the bands that, you know, I grew up listening to, you know, Aerosmith, the That's Eagles, awesome. Billy Joel, you know, those. So I was actually hanging out with Boston and Extreme <laughs> and all these guys. Right. And, you know, I'd get up, go to school, get to work, sell music equipment all night, go out and play and party all night long and then do my homework. Right. It was an awesome job. But I remember the owner coming to me one day and he goes, you're making more than I am. <laughs> and I'm like, what? I, you know, cause I was just doing my thing. Right. He's like, you're the number one salesperson in this company. You're making more money than I am. How sad is that? Now here's the thing. I, re I really respected this guy as a business owner, but when he said that it didn't sit well with me because mm -hmm. I was thinking how much more money are you making? Because what I'm doing right now, the reality is we should be saying, I want every one of my salespeople making $2 million a year. Right. Because if if they're on high commission and they're making two million dollars a year, that means the company is making X off of their <laughs> production. Right. And so, you know, we have 30 of those. And my gosh, look, you know, we got the ultimate um, leverage going on. So, you know, in that division. So the, the, the answer to your question is through questioning, skilled questioning and through assessing and running them through the model of what they're going to go through in the first place. Now. I will tell everybody exactly what you said, but I, you stated a little differently. A top producer like yourself gets up every single day and says, I got to go do this. Now, you know, we all have our days where it's like, oh, you know, my, you know yeah. <laughs> I remember one day, you know, I have two daughters and when they were both really little one, you know, I heard them, uh, you know, you know, in, in, in their room one night and I hear, and I'm like, Oh no. Right. And I go pick one of them up and they throw up all over me. And then I, I, the other one's doing the same thing and then all over the bed and, you know, we're up all night long. Right. I mean, yeah, I wasn't the most chipper person in the morning, right. <laughs> Cause I had slept yeah. maybe an hour and 40 minutes or something like that. Right. So you're always going to have those days, but the reality is that a top producer is, is got two things. One, 
always desiring to get up and do something, and two, never being satisfied with their current level of production. They're, they're just, they're not, you know, and <laughs> I had a, I had a, a person call me and, you know, they were saying, listen, uh, I'm going to fire my whole sales team. I said, why? They go, I, I calculate they're working 20 hours a week and they're not going out after any new business. I said, well, what's the problem? Are they hitting quota? He goes, yeah, they're doing what I want them to do. I, I want them to do better. And I said, well, what are they making? He goes, well, they're averaging 175000 a piece. I said, so let me get this straight. 20 hours a week, 175000 You're in a community where you can buy a house for $150,000. I said, did you ever think that maybe they're at saturation point? He goes, yeah, well, no, but I want to fire them all, right? And I said, maybe you should hire some top producers to come in there who are making $400,000 a year, right? And then you can see if that will bring them up. Because right mm -hmm. now, my guess is, without assessing it, is equilibrium or equilibrium whatever. hit, right? They're not yeah. top producers. A top producer, when they hit 175,000, goes, man, I can make 400 next year, mm -hmm. you know? And mm -hmm. if I can make 400 next year, you know, and, and, you know, we could play games like go out and take that the whole team and have them buy expensive homes and really nice cars and, you know, all that stuff. And now they're in debt and they go, oh, yeah, I got to make more money. But the the reality is that a top producer is not satisfied at 20 hours a week at $175,000. Mm -hmm. a, a top producer who wants to retire might be at that, at that position, mm -hmm. right, where they just mm -hmm. want some extra money. So, you know, a guy like yourself is just going to keep driving and driving and driving. It's and and it's not a choice, Ryan. Right? You you couldn't wake up in the morning and not feel that. Be yeah. You can't just wake up and be different. Like and right. like and like like you said, it's not whether it's in debt or not in debt because that just makes someone super crabby and stressed versus like the intrinsic motivation of waking up and going. I can't wait to. It's the it's the thrill of the hunt and the satisfaction when the commission comes in and job well right. done. And uh, yeah, you're 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 so right, Doug. And I know we're getting close on time here, but. So super important question that I have for a lot of, a lot of founders that, and again, this is mid market companies, you know, a couple million bucks to even 40, $50 million companies where the sales function leadership, the sales leadership function has not been eradicated or extracted, excuse me, extracted from the owner into right. a department that has the same level of care, trust, willingness to sell all that. You know, with your experience, because you've, like you said, you've you've worked in the Tony Robbins world and then Chet's world and all these systems and like high highly scalable consulting firms or other B two B firms. What do you see that is successful that separation when it happens? And like anything that you can speak to on this topic. So you're 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 asking what happens when the actual leadership skills are transferred to toward yeah, the sales like, team. Like what makes that successful? You know what I mean? Like, like what when that happens and like the owners were able to go, hey, Doug's got the same level of in integrity, willingness to sell, emotional resilience. Like, like is it just all those things? Is the process, or is there other factors other than what we've talked about that helps facilitate that getting to the next stage of being able to scale the business outside of essentially just the owner doing a lot and maybe having some sales assistance to like having right. an actual professional department. Well, it, it, they'll never scale that model. It'll it'll hit a plateau, and and then it you know as you said, more stress will kick in, right? <clears throat> so, look, leadership 
from the top has to be driven down through the whole organization. And a lot of times when the leader is the highest performer in the company, they have reluctance to actually offload some of that to other people Mm -hmm. because they want to stay safe. It's their baby. They built it. Right. And, you know, who's going to take care of it like they are? Well, you know, here's the here's the kind of the sad truth. A lot of times, because where the company's grown, you're not supposed to be there anywhere away. And there are other people who will do a much better job than than the the leader of that company. Right. So. When they can start doing that, that starts to free them up. I mean, the leader of the company, they would still want to be the leader of the company. Great. Let's go whale hunting, right? Yeah. Let's let's go big accounts because that'll get you to grow at 5X versus market rate plus, you know, 20% or whatever, right? So there's a, a a job role specification that has to change. But a lot of times, you know, and I know I've been guilty of this too. It's like, no one has my level of expertise in this regard, so... You know, I I can't just outsource this. I can't just bring somebody in and, you know. And, and it's probably even and, more complicated, Doug, in professional services, or I think about like the consulting firms that you've consulted with and worked with. Yeah. Like when you are also the product and the salesperson, and you yes. say, when you're out selling, you can like pull from your, you know, knowledge and experience immediately in real time. Well, the, the, the key around this is is creating systems so that the leader can actually extract out. You know, I mean, Chet Holmes passed away, but the past two years prior to him being diagnosed with what he had that, you know, took him out in the third year, um, he pretty much just lived on his boat and collected millions of dollars, right? Not because he's, you know, didn't want to, you know, run the company. He was just running it in a different way. He had very competent people mm-hmm. and and highly defined systems that we had all built together, right? So mm-hmm. that's the key to get those systems built. And then you can backfill with people um, you know, people are, and a lot of times people go, well, systems trump people. No, they're equal to it, right? I mean, because, you know, no system in the world except maybe the human system uh, or circulatory or brain function or whatever works without the human being. But I mean, the human being can do something to stop that, you know, too. Mm-hmm. So people have to be, but I will, I will say this about that. A lot of times guys like yourself or guys like my, or me, you know, top performers, whether they're in sales roles or in leadership roles of management, one thing that the ownership will must get used to is they're going to be mavericks. So they're going to create some disruption in the process, whether they want it to or not. Mm-hmm. And so we got to make a little bit of space and room for that because that's where the brilliance comes out a lot of times and they find new you know, product sets and things like that. I, I mean, I remember when I was in a sales position uh, for a, for a company, there were 315 salespeople. I was number one guy uh, in that company, you know, selling, but I created product sets that they didn't even have and sold them. <laughs> right. Right. I, hey, do you want, do you want some margin on this new product that we need to sell? I got a, I got a yes. <laughs> I, I, I remember a sales engineer screaming my name and not in a very nice language pattern coming down the hallway go and you know gets to my cubicle and he goes what the heck did you do because i went out and i sold some high profile accounts six of them actually this product set and i said well we can technically do that he goes yes we can but we don't have any way of you know productizing it i said oh well and he said well i'm going to go talk to your your you know your supervisor and the vice president i said okay i get it 
They did. And they go, well, that's pretty brilliant, right? And so they talked to the CEO of the company. The CEO calls me. He goes, he goes, do me a favor, will you? If you ever come across something like this, run it up to me first. <laughs> now, now here the rub of that story is they sold tens of millions of dollars of that that new product set, you know, uh, in in the first year. So, you know, make make room for the Mavericks. Um, mm-hmm. And again, you can. How do you know they're a maverick? You can you can assess this up front. I love it. So, Doug, I know we're we're short. We're wrapping up here. So, I'll I'll uh, ask my last couple questions. So, best place to get in touch with you. So, first of uh, the last question, I'm going the inverse now. But the best place to find you, more about your company, how do, how do people engage with you? Yeah, they can uh, just uh, email me at Doug at businesssuccessfactors.com. Uh, my LinkedIn is Doug Brown one two three four. Uh, they can call me directly at 603-595-0303. And yeah, I mean, those are probably the easiest ways to get a hold of me. Uh, I do have two people who keep my calendar, but, you know, I know when something comes in because they tell me. So, you know, if, if somebody wants to have a discussion or whatever, you know, please reach out. That's awesome, Doug. And then the last question is, the name of the show is Intentional Growth. And I love hearing what, what, what the word intentional means to them. So what does it mean to you? Intentional means that you have a purpose and a direct purpose for a, a, a desired outcome. And you follow that and put one foot in front of the other every single day and keep your nose pointed in that direction and you will get there eventually. That's awesome, Doug. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome, Ryan. I really appreciate having me on here and the questions that were asked. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode and got a lot of takeaways from it. Um, If there's anything, it's just understanding that these high performers are out there. They have intrinsic motivation. And if you identify your right customer profile, the timeline of of the, the sales process, and tie the comp plan, the sales salary, and all that stuff towards your forecast and the the ideal valuation you want down the road, then spend the time and the effort and have the patience to identify these top sales performers. Because when you find them, and I've worked next to these people, Doug and I talked about how, you know, we've got some of that inside of us. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners do, but the, the hardest and most challenging part is extracting that and then finding that intrinsic motivation and willingness to sell and emotional resiliency in others, and then making sure it's the right sales DNA that's tied to your product offering, the timeline, the size of the sale, et cetera. So if you want a better understanding of how all of this fits into a long-term plan, go check out the intentional growth training at arcona.io. Again, sales fits into principle number four, where we're talking about increasing the value by systematizing your cash flow and tying your sales and marketing towards uh, that long-term valuation, not just revenue, but valuation that you want. Again, arcona.io, intentional growth training. Thanks again so much for tuning in, and I will see you next week.